Dotnet Rocks episode 777 with guest Venkat Subramaniam. Recorded live Friday, June 8th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. We're at the Norwegian Developers Conference. Uh, been a good conference here. We've been working hard. It's a lot of shows, but I think we have the best space in the whole conference. We have a sofa. Yeah, we have a sofa. We have the fishbowl, and it's right in the middle of the show. It's very cool. And they have barbecue. Yeah, they've been looking after us. The food all day. No food lines, really. Yeah, other conferences take note. There isn't a mad rush for lunch with lines. They just serve it all day. Yeah, and so people, if you want to eat at the first break, you want to eat at the second break, you want to eat at the quote-unquote lunch break, you know, you have your choice. It's a distribution problem, really, isn't it? It's entirely a distribution problem. And and there's so many different food stations, and they're spread out all over the floor. They're in different locations. So if there's a mob at one, just go to the next one. It's great because they don't have to prepare it so fast. It doesn't go cold, right? Because they're just rolling it out at a much slower pace. People are taking it at a slower pace. It just works. All right, let's jump into Better Know Framework. All right, my friend, what do you got? Well, it's not what I have. It's what the C-sharp language has. We're talking with Venkat Subramaniam today and uh, talking about the funk type in C-sharp. And to let, let everybody know what that's all about, here's Venkat. Hey, it's certainly a pleasure finally to meet you both in person. It's been uh, uh, exciting to actually uh, be here in front of you. So certainly thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure for us. Well, so um, one of the things that I've been uh, getting excited about is something really old, much older than me for for once, uh, which is the uh, functional programming style mm-hmm. that uh, we're all getting you know excited about. Mm-hmm. And funk is really, if you want to think about it, Think about this as an extension to anonymous types. Yeah. And this gives you a way to create anonymous functions, really, really tiny, small, reusable piece of code. Right. And in software development, especially in OO, we care so much about reuse. Well, if you really care about reuse, why not create something that's absolutely reusable? Mm-hmm. And that's a funk type. And okay. then you can just easily take it, mildly, you know, handle that in your fingers and then toss it around and play with it, beautifully creating functional code with it. So what makes it a funk uh, is the, you know, generics obviously have to play a part here because you can have a funk of T and a funk of T result in T1, T2, T3, T4. What is all that stuff there for? Yeah, that, we- that, that's an interesting observation. And the answer is really a yes and a no. The uh, reason for the generics to play a role in there is really because of the language that we are talking about here, which is C-sharp, which is a statically typed language. If you were looking at a func type, for example, also known as function objects or function values uh, in other languages, uh, you probably don't see as much generic types in it because mm-hmm. those languages don't care about type safety at compile mm-hmm. time. They kind of let the runtime handle it. But because C-sharp is a statically typed language, we want to ensure a certain amount of type safety at compile time. So obviously, it's a nice interplay between these two different concepts. One is the, you know, these function objects, and the other is the type mechanism to verify that. So what's the difference between a, you know, a func type 
that's reusable and just writing a function that's recallable and reusable. Right. So you could actually do that, but when you do create a function, normally we kind of put functions you know, as, as part of classes and they belong to a certain class. Right. And, and the type system kind of verifies that you're calling the method on the right object or the right class. Yeah. Uh, if you really want to have an object that, you know, an, uh, a function rather that you want to just pass around. How do you really create? We don't. We don't really deal yeah, with global functions as much, right? You got to create a delegate. Exactly. Now you pass that delegate so, so delegates were a nice first step, and and delegates were, you know, if you really go back to the good old C days, and I, I know that's kind of scary, yeah. but but we have uh, raw function pointers. Right. Uh, to a great extent, you could argue that uh, delegates and then anonymous delegates and then now action objects and function objects really are function pointers. Mm. But the only difference is nobody stays sane after using function pointers. Right. Whereas this is something that's easy to use and, and work with. Nobody stays sane. <laughs> Don't do it. All right. Uh, we're going to talk some more about that with Venkit coming up here. But first, let's get through the rest of the intro. And that means somebody's talking to us. Richard, what are they saying? I'm just still in awe. That was like the best better no framework ever. I tell you, it's so much better when I delegate that out. No, no pun intended. <laughs> then we need a closing song. What are you going to do it like that? It's <laughs> awesome, Venkit. Thank you. All right. Let's, uh, uh, let me grab a comment here. I, this is show 741. This is the one we did with Clemens Vasters about the service bus, which was good, fun show. And I have this awesome comment I've been holding on to because I know Venkat would probably laugh at it as well. It's certainly a topic we all care about. Uh, so Peter Corazio. And he says, howdy, y'all, from Musicville, Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm not. Hey, can you do that with a sudden accent? I'm trying not to. <laughs> I'm not trying to make fun of anybody here. <laughs> I want to hear a Canadian do a southern draw. Come on. <laughs> Y'all's about as far as I'm going to get. A. Uh, let me. <laughs> <laughs> my, my mind is throwing all kinds of exceptions here. Being in Norway. <laughs> oh, man. Let me read this. You enjoy it. I am a computer science student at the Middle Tennessee State University in pursuit of a master's, and I am researching WebSockets this semester. I had landed on the idea of using a bus to scale a WebSocket site to multiple nodes as a potential architectural solution, and this show, meaning the service bus show, gave me the reassurance that this idea was in the right direction. If we really want a highly interactive WebSocket site, like a meeting session site, to scale to large numbers of nodes, a bus is the way to go. So thank you for all all your interesting shows, please consider a WebSocket show. Love to do a WebSocket show. Yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that. And send me a mug so I can be the coolest developer in the office. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> we can do that. Mug's on its way to you, Peter. And if you'd like a mug, just write a comment on the website at .rocks.com. And before we formally introduce Vedcat, I need to tell you about Pluralsight. They provide comprehensive developer training videos online, 250 hardcore courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as those that appear on our show. They give you a 10-day free trial with 200 minutes of access to their library. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month. Coverage includes everything from iOS to Java to Android, web development, Windows 8, HTML5, CSS, C Sharp, functional programming, pretty much anything you can think of on a Microsoft stack. Try it today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, the formal introduction. Venkat Subramaniam is an agile developer who teaches and mentors. He has significant experience in architecture, design, and development of distributed object systems. He's worked in positions from programmer analyst to systems architect at organizations like Halliburton, Raytheon, and Simulation Sciences. Venkat has trained thousands of software professionals around the world. 
He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Houston and a regular speaker at various conferences and user groups worldwide. Welcome back, Venkat. Thank you. Good to see you again, my friend. Absolutely. Actually, I don't think we've ever met before. I, did, I think we did. Uh, I did. Back in, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we've run, we've run across each other. Of course, you've done lots of shows, but it's always over the phone. So it's kind of a luxury to be here at a conference. We get to be all face-to-face, if a little silly. Yeah, a little silly. Well, anyway, we're talking about functional programming, and I know that's your thing. Um, it, would you say, like, being terse in the language and being effective and in uh, not verbose is is one of your you know pet peeves about uh, well not pet peeve verbosity is your pet peeve maybe would you say that's true well so certainly uh, conciseness and expressiveness are yeah. the two things I definitely want to value so classic functional programming has really was sort of put on the back burner when objects came around and then sort of is creeping back you know. F sharp is obviously the Microsoft's offering, but since F sharp came out, a lot of functional stuff's been creeping into C sharp. So, um, what's your programming language of choice these days when you want to do functional stuff? Are you are you an F sharp guy, or do you actually use C sharp because of its, its other features? Well, actually, my my programming language of choice is what pays the bill. <laughs> 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 so, so it depends on what the clients want me to use. Um, so, one of the things that uh, that I've been uh, really excited about. Um, even before C Sharp had some of these features, you, you had uh, anonymous delegates. And, and I was able to write some kind of functional code in C Sharp even before then. And then, which is, which is really a point I want to really bring out, uh, is the reason to really learn different languages. And, and one of the key benefits of learning different languages is not to kind of turn in your passport, sell your home and emigrate to this foreign land of this new language, but, but really is to go back to program in the language you program in. And I bet you the next time you sit down to write code in that language, you no longer are going to write code in the mm. same way you did before. No, no different than traveling the world and seeing different cultures. It makes you see your old culture when you get home differently. Absolutely. It gives you perspective. It gives you perspective and also change in behavior as well. Uh, we, we learn, uh, and, and design is so much influenced by the idiomatic nature of the language. Mm-hmm. And when you do mingle with other languages, you pick up, not the syntax more so, but the idioms of these languages. And, and that thoroughly influences the way we go back and code in these languages. And, and so, um, when I go back in, uh, to program in C Sharp or Java or any of the other languages, uh, I find that I actually code, not only code differently, but design and think differently. Right. So you think ever, you think more functionally in, even when you're coding in C Sharp. Ab- absolutely. To, yeah. to give you an example of this, this was kind of a, a interesting moment. I was pairing with the developer and we sat down to write something. And the first thing this developer said is, oh, you got to write a class. And, and immediately it came as a shock to me. It's like, why? Hmm. And, and because you have to write a class. Well, no, why don't we think about just functions that can solve the problem? And, and almost in any language I program in, it, it really is coming down to more of a minimalism. And going back to your statement about conciseness and expressiveness, what is the minimum I need? How sure. could I avoid mutability? How could I really right. make this a little better in terms of design? And, and functional programming really is influencing that. Just sort of getting rid of that default ceremony. Absolutely. So what does it mean to write functionally? What's different? Um, so that's a very good question. And, and I think that's one of the questions that a lot of us actually struggle with. And 
if you read most of the functional books and blogs and everything, uh, and, and even what I mentioned a few minutes ago, we talk about, oh, avoiding the mutability. We're making everything right. immutable. Yeah. But in that process, I think we kind of miss a point. So I was thinking about this, struggling with this question quite a bit. And, and you know how you kind of begin to, uh, you know, process things and it sometimes takes you a few years to really understand and even then a wonder few. if you really. <laughs> 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 and, and so. To me, the realization about functional programming is really this. It's really not about, you know, tra- uh, um, mutating the state, but instead going through a state transformation. Hmm. So let's take a look at an example of this mm, and, yeah. and see how this would pan out. Uh, let's say for a minute that I have uh, $10 with me and, and, and uh, you know, I want to change for $10. Okay. So I'm going to give call $10 and say, could you please split this? And I'm going to be very... Split it into two 20s. Well, <laughs> that would be nice. But I would be really upset if he takes the $10 bill and tears it up into two. Right. Which is really <laughs> not what we do. <laughs> or at least not anybody sane would do. Yeah. But it's pretty literal. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to give $10 to Carl. And what is he going to do? He's going to keep the bill, but he's going to maybe pull out two $5 from his pocket and maybe give it to me. And I say, hey, I really want 10 $1 bills. Maybe he'll route that back to you, Richard, and yeah. you could probably give me $10 bills. So I get the, I get it. So what you're saying is instead of changing the 10 into something else, we're going to create two new objects, let's say, that that are the same, but it just look a little bit different. Exactly. So it's a transformation of state rather than mutation of state that right. we're going through here. And this is something that we talked about uh, with Uncle Bob, I think it was, when we were talking about the string object. In .NET, and you know, if unless you've been around for ten years and you know about strings, you might not know that they're immutable, mm-hmm. but they are. But when you change a string, you're creating a new string under the covers. Right. So one of my questions to Uncle Bob was Bob Martin was, well, is this something that could be solved at the compiler level so that when I actually have an object and I change it, is there an attribute I can put on that object that says this is an immutable object that instead of Instead of changing the object to create a new copy and, uh, and then, you know, maybe we have more objects strewn around and we have more garbage collection, but we, we have immutability. So, so the answer is yes. And, and there are certain languages that actually do this today, uh, mm. where you can put annotations or attributes on classes to say, make sure this is immutable and I can't change it. Right. Um, and, and to a certain extent, if you really, again, going back to C++ days, you could declare objects as constants. Yeah. You know, one thing that Java kind of made it simpler by avoiding features is by saying, oh, we can't handle that. And, and language like Ruby actually allows you to take a particular object and freeze it and you no longer can modify right. the object. So right. the concept has been around with uh, different support compiler or otherwise. Uh, but, but it's more than really having a support from the compiler. It's, it's a mindset. Right. It's a way that we, you know, in a, in a way, I'd say. Sort of like a diet pill versus actually eating better. It, it is, yeah. and, and to a certain extent, I think it's a disservice of oh, oh, over the past 20 years. It's kind of led us in the wrong direction to a certain extent. And, and it's, it's an effort for us to reset the clock a little bit and say we don't have to mutate the state of objects. We could, we could actually think differently as a transformation. One of, the, one of the things that really drove home the benefit of functional programming, the model of it, is the old, and I say old because now we have async and await, but the old asynchronous model of .NET programming where let's say you had a you know a, you're calling a a file operation on a on a stream and you want to use the begin syntax and so then you create a callback and through that callback you can pass an object reference 
Now that object reference can be a local object that I created in the sub or whatever where I, where I wanted to do that call. And then I can pass that object reference as a state, pass that on through, and it comes back into the callback. And then from that callback, I can create another one. You know what I'm saying? And pass that same state object through. And it, it's, it's only being accessed by one of those calls at any one time, but it's still being passed through. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's not, we get the asynchronousness of it, but I don't have to worry about locking or anything like that because my code only sees it on the same thread at one time, one place at one time. That's right. So, so I think that's one of the reasons why the world is once again excited about something that's as old as functional programming, uh, is, is because of the multi-core and, and the concurrency issues related to that. Um, so while the transformational aspect of it is the way we design software, the real benefits really come in, uh, in, in, is uh, referential transparency, mm -hmm. which is really an ability to reorder expressions and be able to move them around. And that really falls back on the purity that, that we talked about earlier is, uh, because things are immutable, it's easier for us to guarantee that this, this, this kind of acts like a black box. You, as long as you keep sending the same input, you're getting exactly the same output, right. and that becomes much more easier to work with from the concurrency point of view. There's also this mindset of always making a copy not ever trying to share anything. Absolutely. Well, you're sharing, actually. The sharing becomes easier because of immutability, mm -hmm. but avoiding shared mutability, and, right. and so sharing is much more effective when things don't actually change. Nothing can be changed. A exactly. But then, you know, when you make a new copy, now your object references break to that. But So therein lies the discipline of not expecting there to be state. Well, actually, that's a very interesting point, is this is where I think there are two really fundamental things uh, that are evolving right now. And, and I haven't seen enough of this on the .NET space, but there is a bit of this going on in other languages that, that are uh, something that I'm hoping for more development on the .NET space. So let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. Uh, one of them is when, when you are dealing with uh, these objects, uh, uh, first issue, of course, is the change of reference. The other is the cost of this change. Uh, if you're going to keep making copies of these objects, oh gosh, how ex expensive this would be, you're taxing the garbage collector. Right. And, and this is where there are two fundamental uh, approaches we could take. One is, imagine you have a more of a stack, and, and the stack is immutable. You can easily put stuff to the head of the stack and create another immutable collection where the first element is the only new element and the remainder of the elements are part of the stack itself. All right, one more time. All right, so let's take an example. You're, you assume we have a stack here, yeah. and, 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 uh, and, and Richard is the, uh, you know, the last element in the stack. Okay. You are the top element in the stack. Okay. And, and your, your stack is immutable. I'm not going to be able to modify it. I can't change this. Now, does immutable stack mean you can't push or pop? That's correct. Okay. So you can't push or pop. Right. Now I can bring a third element, let's say myself. Yeah. I could be at the head of this particular stack. Okay. You can have a new pointer or a reference pointing to me, yeah. and I could point to you. In that case, I see. your stack has not modified, and I just have one more element added to it. Right. So we can have immutability, but we are not you know, spending the expense of recreating the entire collection. So you're basically creating a chain. Exactly. And and where only one element is added to the head of the chain, right. but you're not affecting any other part of the chain. But if I if you want to remove me from the chain, that's a very constant time yeah. operation as well. Yeah. Because you can recreate a reference to you. Now I'm out of the link. I'm no longer the head of the stack. And we can create multiple stacks without modifying the stack itself. 
Right. So this is one approach. So most of the functional code work on the head of collections. In fact, it is so common practice that a language has been created with this name called Lisp Processing, also known as Lisp. Lisp, so, yeah, a long time ago, too. That's a language from the 60s. Absolutely. So that's so exactly Lisp the fundamental. Processing, that's what Lisp is a, stands for. Exactly. Huh. So it's so common operation to process everything on the head of the list and treat everything else as a tail. And your algorithms are built based on the list processing. That's a very common operation where you can support immutability. So therefore, you do not have collections per se. You well, just have chains. So you have chains as one collection. But yeah. of course, you know, practically, if you want to design applications, you would need more than that. And this is where a guy named Phil Bagwell uh, has come up with a fantastic idea called Trice. It's spelled as T-R-I-E-S. And Trice really is a data structure which has a very heavy branching factor. So every node has 32 or more children as, as nodes. Wow. And, and if you really only look at 32 children in four levels, you can have about a million elements. True. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. And now imagine you have a collection of million elements and you, uh, and Rich Hickey, the guy who wrote Closure, took this concept, made an immutable trice. Hmm. And now to make a change to a try, you have to make a very selective shallow copy sure. of at most four elements to yeah. get a new collection out of it. Wow. So the copying of the collection is extremely cost effective. Right. It's close to constant time performance. Yeah. And, and as a result, when you program in functional languages, you don't want to tinker with your regular good old arrays and, and sets. You really want to work with these kinds of collections. Sure. Like an immutable stack or a prize for that matter. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at Telerik.com slash Metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So you're talking about these objects existing in both the collection and they themselves have these chains that are separate from the collection absolutely well, so, they, the, the, so you can still have a list of stuff on the screen you can pick it but now you're not iterating through a list to find stuff because one of the biggest problems of iterating through lists is that you can't make changes you know to, to the list correct you shouldn't if it's immutable correct yeah, yeah absolutely now it strikes me that there's only certain programming problems that this will work well for. This doesn't sound like a general purpose approach to coding. Well, as it turns out, algorithms really are what? A combination of data structures. Mm -hmm. So essentially data structures, uh, in fact, one of the first courses that most of us are supposed to take in school is data structures are learn it the hard way. Mm -hmm. And and so fundamentally, it's, it's about design. And design is about developing algorithms that can efficiently do certain work. And it turns out that quite a number of algorithms either can be uh, represented using stacks or mm -hmm. using a vector. And Trice is a very nice, elegant representation of vectors, mm -hmm. as it turns out. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, only four levels deep, and you've got million, a million... Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's it's awesome. a, it's a kind of re rebooting our mind to a certain degree to get used to this different way of sure. doing things. So that's one one aspect, but that still doesn't answer the question as to changing the reference. It does ad address the cost of memory, and and changing the memory uh, reference. Imagine where everything is immutable for a second. 
So uh, this is where another concept called uh, software transactional memory really uh, uh, rhymes really well with this. Yeah, and we've been talking about STM a bit on this show, um, starting, I can't remember where we started with it, but it is an interesting concept. And the state of this, as far as I know, is that um, Microsoft Research, you know, was trying to, to work on this and sort of gave up. It sort of turns out that it's not very cost effective. Well, it it could be cost effective. It depends on the implementation, and yeah. and everything kind of scales to a certain degree. So definitely, there are some challenges. For example, one thing with SDM software transactional memory is. Uh, it really breaks away if you cannot guarantee a certain amount of immutability in code we as well. Should, maybe we should back up a little bit and tell people what STM really does. All right, so let's think about this for a second. Uh, imagine for a minute that you have uh, a Google stock price or a Microsoft stock price. doesn't matter what the stock price is. And if you ask me what the stock price is at 1 o'clock today, I would say it's some crazy value. Right. And at one ten in the afternoon, what's the price? Well, it's changed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one way to look at it. But But... Historically, that's not really true because stock prices never change. The price at one o'clock has, is been set on stone. Yep. And 20 years from now, you can come back and look at it. It's still the same value. Right. So think about these as states which are immutable. So the stock price at a certain time never changes. But then we have references. If I give you a company XYZ and say, what's the stock price? What I normally mean is, what is the current stock price? Right. So that is a reference. And, and rather than making it a mutable reference, imagine it is a managed mutable reference. And, and the word managed here has some connotations. A constant that changes. A constant that changes in a very controlled manner. Right. And, and so what is it, what it really means, first of all, is, if you walk up to this reference, the managed mutable reference, and modify it, it's going to give you a slap on the wrist <laughs> and and scream loudly, saying, you "He touched me." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. And uh, and it's going to really pedophilia. No? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it 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 first tells you that you cannot modify it in an uncontrolled fashion. Mm-hmm. So in order to modify this managed uh, mutable reference, you need to enter into a transactional boundary. Right. And and what this transaction tells you is, you, you kind of have to enter into a, I, I would like to call it as a cone of silence. Yeah. So, so right. what that means is, once you enter the cone of silence, whatever happens when the cone of silence quietly disappears if something goes wrong. Hmm. And if there is a firm commit at the very end, the changes you make is visible to the external uh, view of the system. Right. Um, so so uh, you enter a transaction, a cone of silence, and within that cone of silence is when you can modify this particular managed mutable reference. Yeah. So, so first of all, that eliminates the need for external locks on the system. You don't have to be sitting there and worrying about, gosh, did I lock it at the right place at the right time or did I forget it? Those problems are removed from your shoulder. And essentially what's going on here is a copy of the memory involved is made and then the the transaction, the code is done on that copy. That's right, a lightweight copy. A lightweight copy, exactly. And then uh, the uh, if if everything goes through, then that copy copies back. Exactly. Yeah. In a, in a in a pretty safe manner. In a safe. Now manner. then begs the question. All right, what what if there is a, a competition to modify this by concurrent right. threads? So now two threads enter a transaction. They both compete. And assume that they are really not trying to modify the same variable right. at the same time, then they both end up committing. Right. There was no explicit locks held in this case. But then case. they just do it again. They Well, in this particular case, there was no collision. They just right. finish it. Oh, but yeah. in the case that they did collide, 
one of them will complete right. and the other is automatically retried right. with the new state of the system because the reality is you know things collide a million and one times right uh, just the the chances of things colliding is small it's small well think about it as an example let's say two civilized human beings go <laughs> near a elevator what do they do uh, as a civilized human being you say after you please and you let the other person walk through and 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 this kind of begs the question the minute they both walk into and sit in their cars they turn into absolute morons i don't know why but that's a different topic for another day that's true <laughs> yeah so, it's the uncomfortable elevator ride it is so but yeah i think the bigger thing in the elevators and then they stand as far away from each other as that's possible that's right that's right well it depends on the culture I, I too i actually think that's people being polite it just taking a little too far sure and and so just like as we near the elevator you kind of you know roll back your effort to get into the elevator mm-hmm. let the other person go in and then you follow as as soon as the other person goes in which is kind of what stm really does when two threads compete in transactions one of them complete the other one says all right you win let me retry and but, then and then repeats but if he retries typically he gets to write over what the first one wrote but you so did you, uh, get back the previous state or the current state as it stands right, right now and then you get to make the decision whether you want to continue with your right or not mm-hmm. it, it that presumes you're polite enough to think that th- that other person's state is relevant. Uh absolutely and that's where the civility comes in in real right. world and and in the case of applications we do have to and and that's one of the reasons why we do locking in the system mm-hmm. is to say well I'm going to give you privilege to run while I'll you know sit there and twiddle my thumbs in this case we are saying let's assume there's no collision maybe we have an opportunity to complete mm-hmm. and if we can't then in this case particularly we can go ahead and finish it. Yeah and and I've always preferred dealing with locking say at database level and so forth that sort of optimistic locking says I'll let you do anything you want but I'll let you know when a collision comes along absolutely okay so let's get back to STM so you were going to make a point about software transactional memory and then we just dove down the rabbit hole about defining it yep So so basically to go back to your question originally uh when you do have these references you can have immutable data structures yeah. but ultimately you need to be able to modify these these uh you know references and i think that's where stm really shines so but is there any real implementation of stm that we can use today well uh, that's that's where i'm hoping that dotnet framework will eventually evolve to provide some of those other languages do haskell has an stm implementation closure has one uh multiverse on the java platform has one so you really? can use this from any language on the jvm today the challenge of course is how stm stacks up under very high velocity well that's the so here's the question right as we talked over a few minutes ago mm-hmm. the in practical terms real collision really is not that often so it really stacks up extremely well in systems where you have frequent reads frequent writes and very infrequent write collisions but what about systems where there's lots and lots of cores and lots and lots of threads doesn't the the probability that there will be more collisions go up not not really it's it's kind of like saying because we have more uh, roads on the freeway it's going to be more accidents no that's not true it just gives you more you know uh, opportunity to travel but the applications determine the collision rate uh, not the availability of multiple cores really right and and if you really look at you know a practical applications we have a huge amount of concurrency but not that much amount of collisions you know think about banking application you want millions of customers to be operating at the bank at the same time mm-hmm. but very rarely do customers share the account and yeah. collide with each other the 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 discrete unit of work is quite distinct exactly but that's not always the case but know? true but but again when, when which kind of application has an enormous collision right. and if there is one such application sure stm is not the right option mm-hmm. for it 
but for a huge variety of applications, this is a fantastic solution. Yeah, this is a significant number that it, that's just fine. It's really part of it could be a design issue too. It is. Are you prone to? Uh, 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 are you building this app in a way where lots of people are going to compete with the same resources rather than having differentiated resources? Right, and, and you rightly put it. It's a design issue, and, and, and it's working through the design to make sure we don't get into that mess. Well, we're going to have to revisit that with our friends at Microsoft and see where they are with STM. I know they were working on it. but uh, So, uh, you know what time it is, Richard? Uh, must be that happy time again. It's time to give away another Telerik Ultimate Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Today's winner is... David Duffett from London. Congratulations, David. In the UK. Golf, Golf clap. clap for you. Golf clap for David. Uh, he wins this $2,000 value. It's Telerik's Ultimate Collection, everything they have in one box. Actually, seven grand worth of technology, but they sell for two. Uh, and if you want to get in on this, go to the .NET Rocks page, .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button in the upper right-hand corner. Answer a few questions, and you too could win. And uh, we give away something in every show and Every year, starting this year, December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of high technology handpicked by Richard and myself. And we're still wrestling over exactly what that's going to be because, of course, new hardware is coming out all the time. Right. So it might be a machine. It might be, who knows, it might be a, a, a drone. Ah, uh, with bombs. With bombs. <laughs> Can I leave the show right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, make sure that you sign up for the .NET Rocks fan club. All right. I'm still wrestling with why I want to do functional programming. Cause I mean, I don't want to do parallelism because it's fun. And obviously that's the thing. You know, that, that seems to be one of the strengths of going towards functional programming again. What's the business case? What am I solving by going down this apparently fairly difficult path? Well, so, so clearly, uh, functional programming does have benefits to uh, parallelization, concurrency, and multi-core. Let's ignore that for a minute, right? And say, hey, I'm really programming in C-sharp. Why in the world would I use it? Mm -hmm. So this is where the Lambda expressions really shine. Lambda expressions are really these anonymous you know, function blocks, if you want to think about it that way, funk objects mm -hmm. or action objects. But let, let's kind of think about where we would use this. Just let's take one example. Imagine for a minute that you have a object which is uh, expensive in its resource. Okay. And you want to, uh, you know, clear up this object as soon as you're done with it. And, and we all know going the route of finalizer is a terrible idea in C Sharp. Right. So we would avoid that. So the common approach is to use the i-disposable and the i-disposable pattern. Right. Um, I really don't like the i-disposable pattern as much. Uh, reason is you really are putting the burden on the programmer, the programmer. to remember sure. to use the using, right? Mm -hmm. So so the normal pattern is you put using and then this particular you know heavy object. And then within a using block, you right. use the object. And then when you leave the block, it, uh, it automatically kind of automatically destroys dispose. the object. Yeah. But what if a programmer forgets to put the using? Um, you can also think about other cases where you can repeat this pattern. You're working with a transaction, for example. Sure. And you want to get access to a transaction. So you got to create a transaction object, set whatever stuff it's needed. When you're done with it, a you got to either roll. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. When you want to roll back or you want to commit the transaction, do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Well, wouldn't it be nice if you don't have to tell the programmer, sorry, you forgot, go back and fix your code and here's the right way to do it. What if the code will just work the right way in this way? Okay. So here's an idea. Let's make the constructor private. Well, now the programmer is going to say, hmm. 
what the heck? How do I really call this function? How do I create this object now? Well, singletons so, have private constructors. True, they do. But how do you create them using Here's a particular method, method right? Yeah. So you don't provide a singleton method in this case. Okay. So you make the construct private. You don't really care about iDisposable. Instead, you provide a private cleanup method, which hmm. will clean up the object. And you have other methods which are public for a minute. Now you can provide a static method in this class. Let's call it a use method. And the use right. method takes a lambda expression, action object. Okay. So now to use this heavy object, the only way I can use it is to say heavy object dot use. And I would attach a code block to it and mm. lambda expression to it. So instead of passing the code, the co- uh, wait, instead of passing the data to a function, you're passing the function to the object. To the object. Dude, that's right. To this class in this case. Dude, that's messed up. It's backwards. <laughs> so instead, yeah, and that's really what it comes down to. Instead of passing an object to a function, you pass a function to an object. Right. So you just nailed it, right? This is called the higher order functions hmm. when it comes to functional programming. And higher order function is a function which is noble enough to accept just about anything you give, mm-hmm. including a function, and doesn't meanly insist that you only send them objects. So an higher order function means it can accept objects. I'm sorry, it can accept functions. Mm -hmm. You can even create functions within functions. And you can return functions from functions as well. That's what makes a higher order function. Mm -hmm. And and so now we turned this problem into a solution using higher order functions. So your heavy object dot use takes a function. Within that function, you can use this object. And when you leave the function, you're back on the use method. So you can nail this into a try and finally block and do the cleanup resource. And you don't have to tell the user, you clown, you forgot to do the right thing. Right, you because you're the, writing the function. Exactly. And there's only one way for the programmer to do stuff. And you're not shifting the burden on the programmer's shoulder. It becomes a way of using your object. And mm-hmm. I've really benefited from this pattern in C Sharp, by the way, back even in the anonymous delegate days. But with Lambda expressions in C Sharp, this is just a charm to use. Let's take a business case of um, processing of rules. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have uh, our middle tier and we've got rules that need to be, you know, uh, validated. We have to validate data. Yep. Let's just take that simple example. Yeah, How would take, that work? Well, that's a wonderful example because when you take a rule, you often evaluate the rules within a context. Mm-hmm. Now, well, did the programmer define the context properly? Well, you don't have to mess with that. Your run rules becomes your context. It's yeah. kind of the transactional boundary in this case. So you can say rules processor dot run rules, and then that defines the context that you want to do. It can be configured as you feel fit, mm. and then yields control back to the programmer. Whatever the code the programmer provides within the Lambda expression runs in the context you defined. And then when you leave it, you can do the post-processing of this rules that has been defined. Now, imagine the possibilities you have with this. You could Your context could be a test mode where you can run tests on this to make sure the validity of the sanity check. Uh-huh. It could be in a, another context where you are in a secure environment, a third context, whatever that could be. It yeah. opens up doors for so I many things. The, I think the ears just perked up on a million yeah. listeners. Yeah, it's just an interesting way to think about the problem. It, it, it is. It is when you invert the dependencies. Well, in this particular case, it opens up doors for quite a bit of design capabilities. Well, yeah, and the testing case is really, really strong. That's something I hadn't thought about before. But, but geez, that's that that just makes a whole lot of sense. Now I'm going to get into you know we talk about the parallelism case. When you go that this methodology, what happens when we have many separate threads all basically trying to pass functions to the to a given object? 
in how how do you serialize that? Just each one finishes in turn, right? Well, if you're on a on a single processor, and I'm sorry, if you're on a single uh, virtual environment right. like a CLR, then there's no real passing or serialization involved in this mm-hmm. case because you directly have access to these things. And this is where the purity really comes in. These functions are really lightweight objects. They're not expensive. Mm-hmm. But you can pass reference to them. Here's the beauty, right? It's, it's like going to somebody and asking a question. Well, they are pure in that they don't remember anything. They don't store right. anything, right? We call that dumb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we call that uh, being, uh, you know, isolated, separation of concern, right? right? So, so in other words, this object says, Give me an input. I'm going to do processing. So, so let's talk about what a pure function is. Mm-hmm. A pure function says, I'm not affected by what's outside mm-hmm. and I'm not going to affect what's outside. Well, if a function is really pure, you could pretty much call the same instance any number of times concurrently from multiple threads. Because it's not changing state. It's not changing state. Yeah. So you don't need to make copies of it. Right. It's just one thing. It's kind of like Richard is, is extremely multitasked <laughs> and he can answer a thousand questions exactly at the same time. Right. And he can. I've uh, seen it. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> and then so, so any number of people can ask him different questions and, and without an answer, you know, uh, uh, taking a second, he can just, you know, reply to each one of them because he takes the input, does some processing with it, and gives an output, not really altering any so state. So because the function is pure, it doesn't modify any state. It can be called simultaneously on multiple threads Absolutely. with multiple objects on no any overhead thread. at all. It doesn't matter. Now, what you do with the result of that function might impact that object, but that's a separate thing, and we talked about transactional memory as a way that that could ultimately be applied. And that's on the receiver's end. And but the function really doesn't have any you know, issues with that. And it's a post-facto thing. It's after the execution is completed. And, and, and true, but it also is that a pure function would not mess with your data after the fact. Right. It's just going to give you a return that you can do something. With. Which is immutable as well right. in a pure functional style. And then now you have a functional transformation and you can have concurrent flows through this Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. So so now here's the obvious question. So I have all this great stuff in C Sharp. Why do I need F Sharp? Um, So in a way, um, when you... So let's, let's put it this way. I give you a chunk of code, and we agree that programming with immutability is better to do. Okay. If I give you a chunk of C-sharp code, how do you tell me that something is immutable in it? Yeah, uh, I would make him constants. Correct. But let's yeah. assume that you want to use a tool to really check for it. Mm-hmm. How do you grab for a lack of constant? Yeah. I see what you're saying. How in do you F-sharp, for- everything is is immutable so in in by default in f sharp everything is immutable and if you do want to mutate something f sharp has this wonderful keyword 
called the keyword of shame, <laughs> which is called mutable. And every time a programmer types the word mutable, they have to hang their head in they have shame. To, seriously, you should go home and reevaluate your life. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking somewhere a puppy died. But yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it's very easy to grep for the word mutable yeah and it's easy to code review for it and then you can have a punishment schedule for the programmers who wrote that code i thought, I, I, I was thinking you could add a keyword to c sharp that was like you know option immutable yeah uh, well Wow, that would really mess things up, though. But let's, so let's, so let's entertain the thought for a minute. Are, mm-hmm. Let's entertain the thought for a minute. Sure. But what about all the code that exists right set. now? <laughs> well, I, mean, I just think, you know, we about did the this, equal sign. We did this with option explicit way back in the VB days. Yeah. yeah, it was a shock, but pretty quickly, you know, initially you did all greenfield for that. And after a while, you got used to changing your code if you needed to. Just right. To, so, so this begs the question, right? Uh, don't get me wrong, but I love C Sharp. But I, but, but to a certain extent, I also feel. Yeah. Why are they is, doing this to C well, sharp? This is a language that's kind of grown into a kitchen sink as well, yeah. right? In that regard. Yes. That so many features have been added. And now as a programmer, you enter and you see 20 ways to do things yeah. and you're like, what is? So, so here's the so question. The fact that it's a constraint right up front means there's no question. We don't have to search the code for remnants of mutability. It's just there. So uh, uh, here's the difference between a language that's evolved. To a language that's been designed that built, way, right? right built from the ground up. Yeah. And, and languages can be flexible, but at some point, there's only so much it can evolve mm-hmm. before it kind of loses its originality. Yeah. And, and F-sharp has been designed with that intent. It's, it's a language that does a lot of things in a nice, elegant way. And, and here's my answer to that question really sure. is, why should we really worry so much about it? Right. Because after all, I would argue that .NET, as much as any platform, is really a polyglot platform. Mm-hmm. You could Absolutely. write parts of code in any language of your choice on the platform yeah. and then mix and match them. And that seems to be what a lot of people are, are doing with F-sharp is they'll write their assemblies that need to be functional and then they'll call those from within their application. And I would argue that's the power to the programmer, right? right. As, a, as a programmer, it's, it's kind of like you know living in a metropolitan city and you're not forced to eat one meal every day. Right. You can go enjoy the ethnicity and then it go back to your own home mm-hmm. and, and continue to do what you do. And, and that's the polyglot nature is to be open and, and be able to mix those things. Well, you'd wonder if Microsoft bought into that, why they're adding these features to C Sharp, not just focusing more effort on F Sharp. Well, then that begs the question, just because you can do it in a certain language, mm-hmm. you don't have to deprive the programmers primarily using another language to start making use of it. Yeah, right? I do think there's a contingent that want to work in one language. Right. You can you can certainly still write code in C sharp. And so so this brings the question there are two levels of functional programming I view. One is a bigger circle, which is the purity circle, and 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 another is a circle of uh the higher order functions. Mm-hmm. I think C sharp favors the higher order function style but if you really want the whole enchilada to so to say, mm-hmm. and you want really the functional purity in addition to the uh, higher level, higher order functions, then you really have to utilize a language like F sharp okay. that makes it a lot easier to use. And now the next question, and I always ask this question when we do an F sharp talk or we talk about it is, is there anything I'm going to miss if I'm going to write stuff in F sharp? Uh, a pizza uh, at the end of the yeah, night uh, yeah, right. at the company's time. No, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, uh, is there anything lacking from for you as a guy who's done all sorts of functional programming before F Sharp? Is there anything that you'd like to to it to have? So, so here's the uh, you know point: is all these languages are Turing complete. 
So you can pretty much code anything in any of these languages. So what it really boils down to is the efficiency. So, so what's really important is to kind of learn the way to program in these languages. Right. We can naively do things and maybe we will run into some performance issues. Sure. Uh, so it's important to kind of take the time to learn, figure out what kind of data structures to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's a learning curve, right? When, if I've been programming in C sharp for, you know, six years or so, uh, I certainly will need a little bit more time and effort to learn and program in F sharp. Right. So giving that time, I think, is is the is the caveat. So I once think. you know the what the language can do, what it can't do, you're in a better position to use it for a particular task. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the whole question here is: Is it makes sense to build whole apps functionally, or is it always going to be a composite of styles? So uh, you know, how could you really possibly build an application with complete purity, yeah, right? right? Yeah, I'm just I, thinking, you know, building UIs with pure code behind it's pretty right. tough. So there are two ways I, I view this. One is even pure functional languages eventually realize that everything cannot be pure. Right. And these guys are extremely clever. So they gave a name that nobody understands called monads. Nice. Now you're like, what the heck is that? Now you forgot about this immutability <laughs> that they kind of sneak in you know, uh, along the side, right? Mm-hmm. Very clever. So the point really is monadic composition really is you know, bringing in, um, you're kind of saying, you know, everything is, you know, pure. You can have reference transparency, except in these areas, mm-hmm. we have a certain constraint. That's really what monadic operations are, is to say A has to follow B, very sorry, because right. of a sequential order. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing, right? Languages support monadic operations, and F-sharp has this monadic operation composition as well. But the way I look at it is, draw a big circle. And I want to call this a circle of purity. Mm-hmm. And the minute you get into the circle, you are in this pure world. Yeah. And all your impurity, like writing to the database, uh, doing the graphical user interface, mm-hmm. writing to a file, printing the console, everything that could be impure mm-hmm. are done on this boundary or the peripheral. Sure. So you can build an application where you can have this big circle of purity, as big as you can possibly, mm-hmm. and then have this thin circle of impurity around it. And that's a way I would argue that you want to design your application. When you're building an application like this in a polyglot way, do you ever find yourself doing something in the on the C-sharp side and saying, Oh no, this could be functional. Oh, and then ab- moving oh, absolutely. it into your F sharp code. Well, it, it doesn't have to move into F sharp code automatically, but certainly it does become a lot better C sharp code as, as you're writing it. Yeah, and that's what you said. Uh, that's one of the main points you made, which is when you learn another language, it sort of gives you more tools in your own language that uh, that help you find a- absolutely. the right way to do things. Yep. So, is the easiest way to learn to write functional C sharp is to start writing some F sharp. Um, no, to really start learning different languages, be open-minded, mm-hmm. and and take the courage to go write code that is different, mm-hmm. and uh, and then learn from it, and then come back and write a better C sharp code. Has there ever been any code that you've looked at and go, "Oh my god, that's crazy"? Oh, all the time. All right, the one that I wrote this morning. No, no, no I'm <laughs> serious. Like, like, like something that gives you pause <laughs> that you actually have to figure out that that Venkat Subramaniam couldn't wrap his mind around in the first five minutes of looking at. Um, there is always that code, especially the code I've written in the past, comes back to haunt me time <laughs> and again. Absolutely. Um, but but I think this is a process. It's not about attaining perfection, but uh, a measure of improvement. And and I think I suck less today than I did uh, yesterday, and I'm, the hope is that I'll suck less tomorrow than I do. Today. Today. <laughs> but I, I think one of the things you're hinting at here, Carl, is that uh, functional code is not that easy to read. 
Even though it does what you need it to do, actually, actually understanding it is challenging. I would not agree with that statement uh, out of uh, you know out of context in that regard. Just because we don't have the experience of writing it and reading it that you well, know. so it's like saying uh, you know the Norwegian you know text that you see around you today is totally yeah. unreadable. Yes. Uh, of course, the Norwegian friends completely big to differ, right? Mm-hmm. And and so <laughs> so to a certain extent, um, it's although a f- if you saw us trying to give the prizes away today on the stage, you would. Uh, uh, think twice about. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is. It is once we become familiar with the language and the paradigm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, in, in any language, we can write code that's horrible and hard to read. Right. Uh, but given a particular language, once we become familiar with it, I think we can write. Right. Pretty elegant, readable code, I think. And it can be readable, is what you're saying. Yeah, well, absolutely. But, yeah. but I mean, as much as I can write C-sharp code that sucks sure. really bad, yeah, I, guess I can write a sharp code that does too. Maybe one of the reasons that you're saying that, Richard, is because a lot of the things that we've seen use variables, the types, names of which we were taught long ago to avoid, like single letters and things. That's an excellent and, point. And that's probably just because most of those samples come from the mathematicians you know that are always using n and x and f and all of these crazy things. and to your point that's that's absolutely correct mm-hmm. and when i do write production code uh, what I do is I do try to give variable names that are meaningful and not be pressured by the so so I want to draw a distinction between what you may consider as a concise code mm-hmm. versus a terse code. Okay. And to me, a terse yeah. code is one that appears to be concise but soon becomes hard to understand how to maintain. Mm. And and single letter variables are going to become very terse. Terse, but yeah, right? not concise. Not concise. So. When, when you're doing a demo, for example, right, in a conference talk, you want to fit everything into a screen. Right. And you may tend to really put a single letter variable or you're trying to impress your friends with it and so like, oh, how cool this concise this code is, right? But, but really, if you're really trying to create a, you know, usable code, mm. which is readable, maintainable, yep. you don't have that pressure, right? By yeah. putting a variable name that's easier to understand, you right. really are making it easier for the team to maintain it. Yeah. And, and I would not call it as T, for example, when I call it as temperature, for example, and, and that's what I would certainly do. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's good. I would like to see more samples where, you know, there are real variable names. But, you know, here's the problem, though. And, you know, when you're doing stuff that's sort of math heavy, your variables are just variables. Like some of them don't aren't aren't nameable. Well, I, I actually used to think like that. Yeah. But but I was writing a book on concurrency. Recently. Either that or the names could be, you know, that which will become blah, blah, blah. It, some t- you know, you know, you know it's, it's funny you say this because uh, as, as nat- it kind of comes natural. I was writing a book on concurrency. And, and as Andy Hunt uh, was reviewing the book, mm-hmm. uh, he pointed to a formula I had written where I had single letter variables. And he kind of said, why would you do that? Right. And it didn't even occur to me. And I went back and changed it. And mm-hmm. I can tell you now it's a lot easier to understand the formula. Hmm. And from with, a, with, with the expanded variable expanded names, variable right? Names. So from a derivative point of view, I may agree when you have 20 pages of derivation to write to, right. your goal there is not to become expressive. But there's a difference between innovating something and communicating something. Mm-hmm. And when you innovate, you, you do crazy stuff. But yeah. then when the software goes into maintenance mode, you are beyond the innovation stage. You want this to be maintainable as well. And, and readability is extremely and important. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, uh, 
So let's maybe not talk about software that you're, or code that you've seen that has stumped you, but maybe something that's very much impressed you, like the most impressive thing you've ever seen done with a functional program. Ah, most impressive thing done with functional programming. Um, quite a number of things, actually, uh, that I've actually seen with functional style, uh, where I begin to question that you cannot program with immutability and people show you that it's actually possible <laughs> to do it. Yeah. And, and that's where really, you know, you, you kind of have these assumptions with you. And then you sit down with people. This is one of the things I like about conferences, right? You hang out with people and they show you stuff. And. You're right. Oh no, just do it this way. Yeah, exactly. Whoa! Right. And, and you're blown away by that. Yeah, Cause mutability is so deeply in our psyche. We've been, we've it, been living with objects for so long and objects are the mutable land. Exactly. So it takes a while to think differently about that particular problem. Yep. And, and studying through, you know, code in Clojure, for example, uh, Clojure supports immutability to a great extent. You know, you can't change stuff so easily. Um, and, and I've been programming with Erlang for a while. And right. then you sit there and like, how in the world can I code this in a language that doesn't even have a for loop directly implemented, <laughs> right? It bends your mind. And yeah, you may waste an hour or two, but I think you become a changed person at the, the end I of those the hours. The real question is, do you end up with something better by changing the way you're thinking? I think we do mm -hmm. because it, first of all, shakes our faith. Yeah. We are no longer thinking there's one way and what we know is the better way or mm -hmm. the only way to do it. And now you have a few tools in your hand, better set of tools. Mm -hmm. But again, I also fear when people say, oh, that new way is the better way yeah, to do it. Right? There is no one right way. Exactly. This is about adding to your toolkit, not taking away. Uh, absolutely. Okay. And, and, and to have the courage to say, I can make the decision. I can pick and choose right. and not be kind of stoned into it i can i can change this at will right. when i think there's a better way think to do for it. yourself I, I, I too many programmers are at a, sort of a place where they're just happy it ran right like just getting it to work was as right. much as yes, they could do i gotta clean compile yeah well, to a certain extent i think that's important because yeah. sometimes people can get into a uh, you know per, uh, uh, paralysis analysis yeah. or analysis paralysis rather and then say well i'm going to stick with uh, you know finding better ways and not really develop software mm -hmm. there's a balance we have to strike but i think one quality software programmers needs to have is to really be shameless <laughs> right and to be able to show you a code and say you know, tell me how this sucks and how can I improve it? When I think about some of the things that have grown up around the testing environment uh, in the object-oriented world, I'm wondering how those would play out in, uh, in F-sharp, like dependency injection. And mm -hmm. IOC containers. Do we still need those when we when we program functionally? Well, so it it is it's orthogonal actually, and the reason I say that is not all object-oriented languages have such requirements in the first place. Yeah. For example, if you look at languages like Ruby or Groovy, which are more dynamically typed, they don't really have such huge concerns or dependencies. So, to a certain extent, or to a great extent, I would argue that frameworks really are there to fill in the deficiencies mm -hmm. or make up for the deficiencies. The languages, sure. and and so that's quite quite orthogonal. So yes, a functional language may have such needs, but but it's kind of orthogonal to the functional programming style itself. Uh, in in that regard, yeah. And when I think about IOC containers, I think of the app startup sequence. You know where things have to be uh, stood up in the right order. That's where the monadic sequence comes in. Yeah, and that's really probably not where your functional programming is going to be. Right. Your functional programming is going to be with the data that's well established in the middle of the application Most likely somewhere. so. And, and even if there is time when it is really relevant, that's when you're really having the monadic sequence in place, the compositional aspects of things. 
I think that's a show. Yeah, that's a great show. Man, we could sit and talk for hours with you. That's great, Venkat. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Pleasure. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.